rumor has it, a new TV has showed up in the Alex household. A wild LG appeared. Oh, really? Did you happen to get one that has uh, WebOS and HomeKit? I certainly did, yeah. I remember when, was it Palm, I think, had WebOS back in the early days? And LG bought it and everyone was like, what are they going to do with this? And then they, they turned it into, I think, one of the best smart TV interfaces around. I've only tried it in a limited capacity, but I was pretty impressed. Uh, it's it's actually, I would say, good enough that you might not even need a set-top box hooked up to it. Are you going to keep your Shield hooked up? So I have the Shield right now, and uh, Brent is staying with me right now. And we watched uh, last night. So this this is, um, let me rewind a little bit. This is an LG C9 OLED TV. Last year, um, I was looking at buying a new TV after I emigrated, and I was looking at the OLEDs really closely, but they were they were about three thousand dollars, which is let's let's be fair, that's a lot of money for a TV. Um, then the Black Friday deals started coming through for this year about a week ago, and uh, I was on Slick Deals, and Best Buy came up with the LG OLED for about two thousand one hundred dollars, which is again still a lot. And then another deal came up on eBay that was like seventeen hundred, and I was like, oh, okay. Now we're talking. It's got super fast um, processor in it because you know I'm coming from the Shield, which that thing hardly ever stutters. Like it, it's just ridiculously overpowered for what it's trying to do. It's the set top box performance benchmark. It really is. Maybe maybe the Apple TV is is parallel to it, but it's very good. But the thing about the Shield is it can run Kodi, it can run Plex, it can run iPlayer because it's Android, it will also do OpenVPN, which is important for me to get iPlayer working. Oh, I hadn't really considered that. I think it's also worth mentioning, not only does it play Plex, but the Shield, in some capacity, can also act as a Plex server. And if you only are streaming to one or two computers or TVs in a house, you actually could just have your set-top box be your Plex server, and it has some units have built-in storage, and some units have external storage. I suppose at this time, everybody knows about the Shield, though, right? Like, I feel like you and I are such fans, but we've, we've been fans for so long, and they just released a new version, too. Mine's the original 2015 version, so uh, it's getting quite old now, but it works just great. Um, I had an issue with the power supply on it about uh, three months ago, and NVIDIA, you know, considering it's a four-year-old device at this point, full credit to them, they shipped me out a new power adapter, no questions asked, no proof of purchase even required. So, Oh, that's good. I've heard some people complain those are hard to get, so you just got to know who to ask. They just sent it to me for free, you know, so really great experience there from a, a customer perspective. So the thing is about using um, the built-in smart TV stuff, right? I've, I've always been a proponent of, I want my screen to be dumb. I just want it to be a really good quality panel. I'll handle the content. Don't worry about apps. Don't worry about anything else. Could have a five to 10 year panel and then a set top box you replace every couple of years, potentially depending on price. Um, now the downside to that is that you need to make sure that every, th- every link in your chain between your set top box and your TV supports the audio formats, the, the video resolutions so 4k and things like Dolby DTS master audio is pretty well supported, but there are some others that are slightly more esoteric that sometimes don't get full pass-through support. So Brent and I ran into this last night, actually. So um, there we are watching The Matrix, uh, a full-on UHD Blu-ray rip that I have stored um, on my Plex server. And we're watching through the NVIDIA Shield, through my Denon AVR, into the uh, LG. 
We got halfway through the movie and it started buffering for some reason. I think there was several people watching my Plex or something. Um, so I started looking at some data and it turned out it was actually only playing at 1080p on the screen because my receiver doesn't do 4K pass-through because it's old. Okay, so I now need to upgrade my receiver. Great. But then I thought, hmm, what if I use the Plex app built into the TV? Turns out, because it's built into the TV, it not only bypasses my receiver um, in terms of that 1080p limitation, but it also supports HDR, which my receiver didn't. So Brent and I are sat there, and there's that lobby scene where they're, you know, shining flashlights in the Matrix. You all know the scene. And, um, you know, Neo and Trinity are doing the cartwheels and shooting each other and all, all the people. It's a classic. Yeah. There were moments in that scene where both of us were sat in a dark room where it was, like, so bright because of the HDR stuff. We're just like, oh, that's like, you know when someone shines a flashlight in your eyes in real life? It was genuinely like that from a TV. Astonishing. I actually think I'm probably going to ditch the shield for the majority of my content now because the LG thing has this magic wand remote you can wave around and it's it's like a I guess a Wii a Wii nunchuck remote type deal. Um it's fantastic. And you've sort of simplified too, which is kind of nice because really all of the hard work's being done back on your Plex server. You just need a front end to stream the HD64 stream. And you need it in the right colors and the right sound channels. Direct play, all the things. But so having uh, Plex on the TV leads to an interesting issue that I hadn't even considered. Getting sound to your speakers? Correct. Yes. So I discovered last night, and this is quite an old technology, I, I think, but I discovered audio return channel last night. There's a HDMI port on my TV that has an ARC thing and there's a hdmi port on my receiver that has arc marking so it will take the sound from the plex app or any sound from the tv actually and then it will use hdmi i think cec protocol to actually turn the receiver on send the sound to the amp um, and then i get the full surround sound pass through coming through the amp that's so much fun getting something like that and it sounds like you got a really good one um and did you say you got it as a black friday deal too yeah i love early black friday stuff I'm looking for storage. You got a TV. Lots of good deals to be had at Best Buy on storage. Those uh, easy stores are still 12 terabytes for 170, 180 bucks, something. <laughs> I love it. You, I, I'm in a Telegram group that broadcasts when there's great deals on hard drives. Have you seen this Telegram group? There's a serverbuilds.net one that's pretty good for sort of en- used enterprise gear that I'm part of. <laughs> that's even better. That's a great one. So um, on the opposite end of that is my home assistant setup which is uh, running on Raspberry Pi 4 in a Docker container. And then I have another one. I have two. I have another one here at the studio, which is running on a much larger x86 box. And Home Assistant is probably one of the open source projects I am the most passionate about now. What I love about Home Assistant is it allows me to take all of the different quote-unquote cloud-connected smart devices and control them with one interface over my LAN with no cloud connectivity required. Home Assistant works off of these integrations, and these integrations enable additional functionality. Home Assistant is underpinned by very simple, easy-to-read YAML configuration files. And it's got a default UI that's built around something called Lovelace, which is pretty easy to customize, or you can just throw it all out. Uh, I am not as long of a Home Assistant user as you are, though. I think you've probably been using it for probably twice as long as I have. It was January that I started. Uh, it was the smart LED project that I talked about at Linux Fest Northwest. 
you know, just I, I, I'm a huge proponent of solving real problems to get yourself excited about something. And for me, that was lighting. It's a great way to learn. It's like the way for, for me to learn, really. <laughs> it's a very low risk way to learn. So if, if you're, let, let's put it this way. So if your lights don't switch on, nobody's going to really get hurt or, you know, something, so it's not going to cost you a huge amount of money or something like that. Whereas if you're automating like the, the locks on your house instead, like you might be locked out if you screw up. Right. And that's, that's obviously a bit more of a, a big kind of risk. Um, so for me, lighting is a really great way for people to get started. It's, uh, it's fairly cheap. You know, you can either just buy off the shelf bulbs from Philips Hue or LifeX or any other Z-Wave compatible or Zigbee compatible kind of brand. Uh, I think Ikea even makes some stuff now, or you can make it yourself, which is what I, which is what I did. I had a lot of pre-existing smart products because I initially went for speed and ease and I went and I tried the uh, Google smart stuff, the Alexa smart, cancel, sorry everybody, <laughs> the Echo smart stuff. <laughs> and um, I also went pretty deep into HomeKit because I really liked that HomeKit was over the LAN, no like cloud API stuff. And so I ended up with a real hodgepodge of devices. And it wasn't until I got this project off-grid mandate to say no cloud. I want all of this stuff that I've learned to like and love in some cases to work when I don't have internet. And that's when I really started to refocus on Home Assistant. So not the longest user, but I have gotten so much out of this. It has it has become a quality of life project for me. Like it's improved our quality of life. So much so that um even as recent as this morning, and this is this we've had this conversation several times now. My wife and I have been discussing how it has improved our quality of life in the RV over the fall and into winter. And then something you touched on there too, Alex, is sometimes things can go rough at work. You can have a couple of losses in a day at work and you're not feeling that great. And if you can go home and accomplish something, it sort of softens the blow of what happened during the day at work. And it gives you a sense of accomplishment that you can, you can enjoy. So this landed really at a great time for us because I've been really experimenting with how lighting can change our space and putting in light strips and light bars and um, just kind of experimenting with different light fix bulbs and seeing how changing colors and adding light, essentially painting our home where I, 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 I looked around and I said, where is it really kind of dark? Where's the light falling off in this space? And then I put warm different kinds of lights in there that shine lights on walls and ceilings and tying all of that to the sunset and the sunrise and morning and wake scripts. It's really made it feel homey. How cool does it feel when you're just sat on the couch watching TV? You haven't thought about it. You haven't even noticed it's getting dark outside. And then suddenly your light switches on just gently. And it's like, I did that. I mean, okay, Home Assistant did that, but I thought to write that automation that did that. And Home Assistant has sunrise and sunset as a trigger which is just fantastic. So it does that figuring out for you. Mm -hmm. And then you just say, when sunset occurs, fade these lights on for me. And it's wonderful. Another thing I love about Home Assistant are the, the metric S-ton of integrations that it has. Looking at the website, home-assistant.io slash integrations, they have, at the time of recording, 1,492 different integrations. And so what can you do with some of those things, right? Right. Now, um, I don't live in London anymore, but when I did, 
um, it would have been quite useful just to have some kind of a visual indicator in the morning, not another notification, but just like some, some kind of visual thing that says, Hey, your train is going to be delayed this morning. What I have done is I have used one of the many things you can do in home assistant besides integrations, but just something the Lovelace UI allows is I pull in traffic cams from all of the major intersections around my home and the studio. So I have one tab in Home Assistant. I get a snapshot of the weather, the temperature at the studio, the temperature at home, and all of the driving conditions. Very cool. The thing that I love most is the fact that it's a single pane of glass for every single IoT type situation that you have. So you know, in, in London, you're, you're taking the tube somewhere and, you know, let's say your your tube line is delayed. There is a, a London Underground integration. So it will go and poll the London Underground API and say the circle line this morning, it has massive delays. So I could change my route based on that, maybe. And because it's a sensor, Home Assistant has a bunch of different constructs in it. And one of the things in there is a sensor. So that could include stuff like a water sensor for you in your RV to check that something isn't leaking. It could be a light sensor in the window to check the ambient light levels. So if it's a particularly gloomy day, it will turn the lights on in your house. Or in this case, it is an API call that this integration makes to the London Underground API to say, hey, this tube line is uh, screwed this morning. Avoid. And that status acts as sensor input to the Home Assistant system. And so then think of it a bit like if this, then that, but on your LAN, right? So you have a sensor that triggers uh, something. So again, you have another another construct called a trigger. So a sensor triggers an automation. And so an automation can be anything that you can think of. It could literally be changing a light bulb from 50% red to 50% blue. Number one impact on our quality of life has been what I have done with our heaters and our water system because they actually make living in the RV possible. RVs are not super well insulated and ours has three slides and where the slides are at, air can pass. And so it can be a challenge to keep it comfortable when it's 30 and 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside. So I have a series of sensors and I'll link to my sensors that I just absolutely love that report into Home Assistant constantly, every couple of seconds. So I also get data. I get chartable data on my temperatures, but we'll get to that. So I have an automation that gets triggered by the sensor data that says if it's between 7 p.m. and 9 a.m. and the temperature in this room drops below 67 degrees, turn on a heater until it rises to 72 degrees. Now, the thing is, that sounds great, but in an RV, you can lose temperature so fast that you either A, can't keep up with the demand, or B, B, as soon as you turn the heater off, the room starts to get cold. I have solved this with a oil heater that is very low, slow, ambient. Once it's going, it just sort of radiates heat. And small little 500-watt space heaters that will kick in in the short term. As the temperature begins to climb up, the short-term 500-watt heater kicks off, and the oil heater finishes the job. And then we have the same thing if the temperature begins to drop too rapidly, the little 500-watt space heater will kick in to shore up the gap and keep it around 67, 68 degrees in our bedroom all night long. That's nice. It's it's changed our lives. We sleep so much better. Um, and my wife is particularly sensitive to the house not being comfortable. For me, you know, it could be 60 degrees. I'm fine, right? Throw a jumper on. 
Yeah, exactly. But she does not want to have cold toes. No cold toe. She has a no cold toe policy, Alex. (laughs) So I've really gotten a nice quality of life improvement out of just a couple of sensors and just different smart plugs activating oil heaters or space heaters. When you add things to the system, they all become data input points. So when you add a camera, it can also be a motion sensor. A lot of these also offer motion sensing and humidity sensing. And this is all information you bring into Home Assistant that enables you to make different decisions and different actions. I'll give you another example. It's very possible for our water to freeze this time of year. Our water comes in from a hose into a water bay. Now, Water Bay is outside the RV. It's in an enclosed space, but it's low, and it gets colder than the inside of the RV does. I have a temperature sensor. It's a Z-Wave device. It runs off of a little tiny lithium battery. It runs for a year, and it's 3M taped to the inside of that bay, and it measures the temperature constantly. When the temperature reaches 37 degrees, it turns on a traditional incandescent light bulb. That light bulb in an enclosed space is enough heat to raise the temperature up above 40, even when it's freezing outside. And when the temperature reaches 40, it turns off the light. And that prevents my water lines. Just that, that simple little tweak prevents my water lines from freezing. Doesn't take much, does it? And uh, sometimes those, those really small jobs add up to a cumulative, massive impact on your life. You know, for me, a couple of my favorite automations are around a bedtime routine. So in my house, I'm like, hey, hockey puck. It's bedtime. That that starts off like a 20-minute routine in my house of the lights doing a certain dimming pattern um, so that I don't have to reach for any switches. When, you know, when you're lying in bed and you're comfortable and you're ready to go to sleep, the last thing you want to do is reach over and actually turn the light off. Um, I don't have to do that anymore. But the other thing, and this is a really weird fringe benefit, is that Archie, my dog, has learned to recognize that particular phrase of bedtime so much so that as soon as I say, hey, gee... Uh, bedtime, he'll jump up from his bed and go and stand by the back door and wait to be let out, you know? So it's, (laughs) I've automated my dog. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I stole that idea from you. When I I visited you, I saw that. And so I went home and I implemented a bedtime script and a good morning script. Now, scripts are not the same as automations. Scripts are when you just want to manually execute a series of things and you can program in. And what you did, which I totally ripped off from you, is you programmed in some delays and some dims. So when you kick off the sequence, it's sort of a cascading shutting down of the lighting in your home, and they ratchet down their brightness, and then they turn off completely. And there's kind of like, it's it over a month or so of using that, it builds in a routine. Like it's, you know, I'm really going to bed now. Like the house is shutting down. I, I can't just stay up and just do what I want. I got to go to bed now. I've kicked off the routine. I supplemented it a little bit, because we have kids and we're sometimes, when we're, when we're moving, we're sometimes in noisy areas like rest stops. We have placed a couple of white noisemakers into smart plugs. And so my bedtime scripts turn those on as well. Lights start to dim. The noisemakers come on. When those noisemakers come on, that's Levi's cue to go get in bed as well. Same thing. I've automated the dog. <laughs> and in the morning, I hit that. It turns off the noisemakers and it does a soft lighting. So that way not everybody gets blasted with lights. A couple of small lights come on. And then over a 10 minute period, they come up to full brightness. So some of these automations and stuff do require quite a lot of thought to get them right. And tweaking. (laughs) When they're longer. Yeah. Tweaking and stuff. This isn't something I've done yet, but I want to investigate something called Node Red, which allows you to basically have, um, 
I, I don't know the terminology, but you have boxes and lines that you draw between things to basically create a automation flow chart. So you say, you know, if this, then that, but on a grand scale. Um, and it can do stuff uh, based on presence detection, which is something I've not really investigated much, but it's a huge part of Home Assistant, really. There's a bunch of sensors that can detect when your phone is on Wi-Fi. You could use a service like Life360 to detect when you're driving. Um, you and I both have the automatic uh, OBD2 uh, things in our car, OBD2 ports, to read, I don't know, like engine statistics and mileage and all that kind of stuff. And you couple all of those data points together and then Home Assistant can actually have a pretty good picture of whether you're home or not. And so a lot of the problems with things like Philips Hue is that it has a GPS thing built into my phone uh, and it uses that for presence detection on the lights in the house. Well, what about if my wife's home and I'm not? The, the, the logic is just not smart enough to deal with that kind of actually pretty basic situation and very common not to mention the privacy implications too, that's going to their cloud service. Yeah. And a, a lot of this other presence data doesn't leave my LAN in the home assistant world. So there are just huge, huge benefits that it does take a bit of, you know, effort to, to get started with home assistant. But once you do, boy. And you can start with simple, just turn one or two things on and off with a cheap smart plug. Uh, if you want something dead simple, a couple of devices I can just recommend off the top of my head is there's a fantastic TP-Link integration with Home Assistant. If you have a, one of those Casa smart plugs, you can use them immediately with Home Assistant. Nearly all HomeKit smart plugs that just speak the HomeKit standard protocol will work with Home Assistant. So that for me was huge because that covered everything I had. Also, the I know for a sure, um, like I have a few in production kind of like um, recommendation, the iHome smart plugs, which are HomeKit, will work. I, the reason why I mentioned HomeKit a couple of times is it's a pretty solid protocol. Does not require any iOS devices on your network when you're using Home Assistant. And it's all over the LAN. The company you bought the device from never even needs to know it's online. So you can take advantage of economic, compact, Wi-Fi capable smart devices over your LAN. And that for me is huge because that means anybody can get started with Home Assistant. I like the TP-Link ones because I buy them in a two-pack for 30 bucks, And that's not even the most economical way. There's even cheaper ways to do smart plugs, especially if you go the DIY route like you do, Alex. Yeah, one of the first projects I did was, again, like lighting was a very low-risk one, but smart plugs, again, are quite low-risk. They're, they're very easy to, to do and very low-risk if they go wrong. And so I ordered a four-pack of something called the Tekin SP20. And these guys are 100 to 240 volt compatible, and they will support a maximum load of 16 amps. Now, inside these guys is essentially an Arduino. And what some very smart person figured out was that the firmware callback that this makes when you first connect it to your Wi-Fi is trying to connect to Tekin to do a firmware update. So what they did was they reverse engineered it and performed like a man-in-the-middle attack. So using my Raspberry Pi, it's Wi-Fi chip and the Ethernet to basically be the man-in-the-middle. My Raspberry Pi turned into the Tekin update server, provided a bogus update file to this little white box in my hand. And so I was able to flash it with the Tasmota firmware, which is completely open, I will never 
so long as I own this physical piece of hardware, ever be beholden to Tekin and their business model. And so I now own this piece of hardware completely. There's no other business model at play here other than I paid 10 bucks for this piece of plastic. Okay, now let's get to the more advanced stuff because we keep mentioning voice control. However, Home Assistant doesn't provide home uh, automation via voice control out of the box. It's an actively developed project. Maybe it will one day. But how have you solved that problem? Because there's really two routes with Home Assistant. Google Assistant is uh, supported, as is the uh, the one that begins with the letter A. It's supported, but it's really, you have, there's two routes you can take on how to actually make it work. And you and I have gone very different ways on this. There are two routes. You're correct. There is an automatic setup via Home Assistant Cloud, and the other one is a manual setup. So I, I went through the manual setup. Um, my Home Assistant is exposed through a reverse proxy and there are some security implications to exposing your home automation system to the internet. If you're not comfortable with those, then don't do it. And so if you don't go the manual route, you can go the Home Assistant cloud route. And Home Assistant partners with Nebucasa to provide essentially a way to run or control Home Assistant from anywhere without you needing to really understand or configure your own port forwarding or reverse proxy. So I can speak to that a little bit because that's the route I went for another reason. And that is I am behind some carrier grade double NAT. There's just no way I could punch a hole through even if I wanted to. Plus I have taken it on as a challenge to just not allow anything from the outside to this network. And I just assumed I would always use a WireGuard VPN. But not ideal if you want some quick remote access or you want voice assistant integration. So this Home Assistant Cloud is, you, partners maybe, they're connected. Like it is it is a commercial arm of some of the people behind Home Assistant. And they seem to be essentially proxying and mirroring a Home Assistant setup in the cloud. There's a slight delay using the system, but it's not bad. And I decided to pay after the trial because... The way the proxying works, I never have to expose my network to the outside system, but I can still get in, I can still view my cameras, I can manage it as if I was at the LAN. It's 100% like I'm at the LAN. And by doing that, I also get one button click publishing to the Echo or the Google Assistant, which solves that, which you had to kind of build a system, including stand up some software on your server to enable that, I believe. Yeah, um, an an Nginx reverse proxy is is how I did it, and then you have to go into the actions section of your Google account console, create a new smart home card and a new smart home recommendation, and build an action. and It probably took me an hour or two to get it working in the end. Uh, it's not been a hundred percent reliable either. Like quite often, I will say sync my devices to the Google Assistant. It will just say, "I'm sorry." Hass is not available right now, even though I can go straight to the Hass URL and it's perfectly fine. I have actually had really great results with the Home Assistant Cloud. And the other thing it gives you, which I'm not utilizing yet, but it gives you a public webhook URL. So anything that can be triggered by a webhook can be given a publicly accessible URL. So you can send data back to your Home Assistant system from anywhere in the world without actually having to expose it to the internet itself. And that's really handy for collecting data outside my environment as well. Um, but 
same time, I can understand why people wouldn't necessarily want to pay $5 a month and they might not necessarily want somebody else hosting a instance. I don't know what they're doing, but the setup process takes a bit. Like they're building a system behind the scenes and it seems to be its very own instance that's dedicated to you. And they seem quite confident in the security. I, I did look into it a bit. But once you've done either what, what Alex has done or this route, you can then pair it with a voice assistant and it will integrate to some effectiveness. Enough that we can turn our devices on and off, which is really all we want. I just want a dumb, simple way to start off routines or automations or scripts or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's nice when your hands are full or whatnot or when you're in bed. So, okay, so that's that was one of my kind of more complicated ones. The other one I want to ask you about, it's going to come up as soon as you start digging in very far, especially in the home assistant communities, MQTT. There's a lot of answers on the internet that will be, well, you should really be doing this with MQTT. You could get a Zigbee to MQTT device and bring it into Home Assistant that way. And I know you use MQTT for even those Tasmoto devices you were talking about. Explain this to me, because what I'm familiar with is like from the mainframe days. MQTT is a message queuing transfer protocol. Uh, I don't know what MQTT itself stands for, but message queue is pretty much all you need to know. And I know it allows for publishing and subscribing to certain messages from devices. You can subscribe to something and always get updates on it once you have that set up. Correct. So if you're familiar with something like Kafka or any other situation where you're sending a message into a queue to be processed by something else later, that's pretty much where you're at. Now, there's a few key uh, concepts to be aware of. You have, as Chris said, the publish and the subscribe thing, but you also need what's called an MQTT broker. And in this situation, you can enable that inside Home Assistant with one single line of configuration. And so where that becomes useful is, let's say you have a sensor. In my case, that is these Tekin Smart plugs that I talked about. These guys are publishing to a topic the amount of voltage, the amount of amps being drawn, the total cumulative kilowatt hours consumed, etc., they're publishing all of that data to an MQTT topic. Now, until that topic gets subscribed to, it will just sit there and be in the broker. So when you're writing your automations, you want to consider that maybe you could subscribe to a topic, which is essentially like a push notification at that point. When you subscribe to that topic, you're in a situation where you're not having to go to the end device and say, hi, what's the latest amp draw? What's the latest voltage? The sensor is publishing that data to the broker. And then maybe you have an LED strip that will change color based on the contents of that published topic. Yeah, like you were saying that the traffic was really bad on the tube, you could have a light strip turn red. You wouldn't have to look at your phone or anything. If that light strip is red, you know you need to take your alternate route that day. And the way it does it is through um, publishing uh, usually a JSON payload. So, you know, you'll have key value pairs in there, which you can um, reference in pretty straightforward to write Arduino code. And then using off-the-shelf microcontrollers, you can do some pretty cool things. You can turn on AC, you can stop a 3D print. If a room's got too hot or something, you could turn a light on and off. You could, I don't know, launch a locket to the moon if you wanted to. <laughs> so if I'm following you in this case, the small little lightweight IoT device, it it just gets its data off of it, says, here's my information. It sends it to the broker. The broker collects it. 
Home Assistant itself is not a broker. Home Assistant subscribes to the broker, then brings that in as a sensor data point, which you can then build automations around. Yeah, there's, so you can run a, an MQTT broker as a separate container on your system if you want to and just have a dedicated standalone MQTT instance. And do you use a particular one? No, I just use the one built into Home Assistant because it's stupid, simple to enable. It's literally MQTT colon, and then it's enabled in your config. That's it. I know other people use, what is it, Mosquito, I think is one that people use. I've heard that's a pretty popular one. That's why I thought maybe you were using Mosquito. There are performance concerns. Um, I've never run into any. Let's say you've got, I don't know, a hundred of these smart plugs in your house and they're all throwing updates every couple of seconds, plus all of your lights, plus everything. Uh, you know, you, you will end up in a situation where um, you might want to start considering an external broker. But for, for my needs, the internal one has been absolutely fine. I think maybe in my setup, being Raspberry Pis, my home assistant Pi does the most. It does several other, it runs like seven other containers that are kind of busy. So it has sort of the highest workload next to my Shinobi Pi. But my Pi hole, Raspberry Pi, is just sitting there not really doing much. So I was thinking making that my network services Pi and putting Mosquito on there and putting Grafana on there because I know Grafana is another thing that I could get down the rabbit hole to get really good long-term pictures of data. How does Grafana, which is an incredible graphing application, how does that tie into Home Assistant? Because I've seen a lot of people do that. Yeah, so you can enable the InfluxDB output from Home Assistant, which writes pretty much every event that happens in the Home Assistant database to the InfluxDB time series database. So you end up with a, a a time series database in influx of every single event that happens. So every time motion is detected in a camera or every time you turn a light on and off or every time your thermostat detects the, the temperature has changed by half a degree, it will write to a Home Assistant event log. That then gets pushed into InfluxDB. And then Grafana supports a bunch of different time series databases. Influx is one, Prometheus is another. There are There are lots. Um, and you can then create queries which will graph your data out and make it look pretty. It's so neat because I've just done some graphing with the built-in stuff in Home Assistant, and I really feel like that combined with the event log, I get a I get a real complete picture of what's happened with my family and my home throughout the day in one spot. And I can kind of review it and see when things got cold and how things all responded and what levels of tanks we're at. And for me, it's it's a really nice way to kind of wind down in the evening. It's just see what my home was doing all day while I wasn't there. During the research for this episode last night, um, I was talking with you after LUP about the different integrations that Home Assistant has. And I came across my electric supplier in North Carolina, Duke Energy, actually have a Home Assistant integration. So these guys have an API available for the smart meter on the side of my building that must have a cellular modem in there to send my meter readings back to them every I don't know, every day or whatever. Um, so I turned that integration on last night in about 10 minutes. And now I have uh, all of that meter data for my electricity supply in Home Assistant. I could do automations based on that. So let's say my energy usage has gone, bit, gone above a certain threshold in a certain day. I could say, right, that's it. No more electric today. Turn everything off. <laughs> more realistically, what I'm going to do with that is take that data feed it into Influx, and then create a Grafana graph so that I can more accurately track my monthly and daily energy usage across the entire house, not just 
where each of my smart plugs is at. That's so cool. I plan to do something very similar because a future electrical system I plan to get for as part of Project Off-Grid feeds off all of that information via Bluetooth. So I'll capture it that way. This is an area where we could go on and on for hours. We could talk about Z-Wave and Zigbee and Wi-Fi. We could talk about integrating motion and security sensors. Or we could talk about crazy great integrations and automations. I'd love to hear what the audience is doing with their setups and what they'd like to know is possible. So go to selfhosted.show slash contact and let us know. Or of course, there's always that hashtag ask SSH. So I think that'll do it for today. I'm on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm at Chris LAS and the show is at Self Hosted Show. And as always, you can find our show notes and all the rest of the information about this show on selfhosted.show slash seven. Thank you.